Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. Kathy Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and a compliance professional for over 20 years, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Following the financial crisis, there was much reflection by governments, regulators, supervisors, and industry as to what went wrong and what could be done to prevent it from happening again. The strong emphasis that regulators, supervisors, both prudential and conduct, place on culture is a result of the wider strategic response by them to address the issues that underpinned the global financial crisis. What exactly is culture and why is it important in financial services? I'm delighted to have with me today Marion Kelly, CEO of the Irish Banking Culture Board. Marion was appointed CEO of the Irish Banking Culture Board in March 2020. Marion previously worked with Bank of Ireland for 13 years across a range of senior leadership roles in strategy, regulatory compliance, operational risk, internal audit, and recovery and resolution planning. Prior to joining Bank of Ireland, Marion worked with PwC Dublin within the Financial Services Regulatory Advisory Practice, and prior to that worked in Brussels with both the European Savings Bank Group and the European Commission. Marion is a certified bank director, a licentiate of the Compliance Institute, and holds a Master in European Economic and Public Affairs and a BA in Economics and German, both from UCD. Marion has also completed the professional diploma in leading cultural change and ethical behaviour in financial services and diplomas in leading sustainable corporations and in fintech, both with the Oxford Said Business School. So thank you, Marion, for talking to us today. Um, Marion, starting at the beginning um, for our uh, newer members, um, what was the backdrop and the drivers, the establishment of the Irish Banking Culture Board and what is its role in banking and financial services? Okay, so um, the Banking Culture Board was set up in 2019 and the backdrop really, you've, you've touched on a few of the things there, but it was the financial crisis, the great financial crisis, and particularly the impact that that had in Ireland in terms of customer outcomes. Um, and there had been a number of conduct-related issues that I suppose came to light as a result of changing economic and, and banking circumstances post and during the financial crisis. Most importantly, uh, the tracker more mortgage-related issue, which effectively was where there was customers put on mortgages, which the, the interest rates were tracking the ECB rate. And once those products became unprofitable for, for banks, customers were removed off of those contractual arrangements. Um, and it came to light that the way that that happened was not in the best interest of customers. A number of customers were entitled to retain their tracker product and they weren't afforded that right. So that became a huge issue in terms of policy in terms of media, in terms of a regulator, and it really shot a light on, I suppose, how banking, retail banking was done in Ireland. And there have been a lot of talk about putting the customer first and conduct and customer centricity and so on. And frankly, that wasn't the case when a, sh- a light was shone on how banks performed in relation to tracker mortgages. There were other conduct-related issues as well, but the tracker mortgage issue, I would say, was really the, the straw that broke the camel's back, to, to, to pick a phrase. So what happened at the time was 
because there was a lot of political focus, there was regulatory focus, as I said, there was media focus, there were investigations going on by the central bank, uh, the last of which only finished late last year, so they went on for a long time. And there was a lot of talk from the banks about we've learned the lessons, we've changed, we're committed to doing things differently going forward. You know, there had been changes in regulation and so on. But the sense was that that wasn't enough. And reading that banks need, I suppose, put their money where their mouth was, come together as an industry to show they were genuinely serious about cultural behavioural change. And this was where, I suppose, the idea for an Irish Banking Culture Board was originated from. So it was the five retail banks in Ireland coming together on a non-competitive basis, agreeing to be to to fund and establish an entity which would be independent so that it would be chaired by an independent chair who had nothing to do with banking. The majority of the board would be non-banking and they represent various different stakeholders in Irish society representing different to the customer groups, staff, and that the banks would willingly go to that for a talk about what they were doing in terms of culture and behavioural change while they were doing it. Then another key thing was to measure and to really see, okay, you're telling us you've changed, you're telling us you're putting in place all of these protections. Well, we want to have a means of independently measuring and challenging and assessing that. So, so that was that was the background to, to why we were established. Okay, so a very important brief and an, a wider range of stakeholders, Marion, that, that the yeah. IBCB serves. So what has been the focus of the IBCB since establishment? Okay, so we were set up, as I said, in 2019, and uh, I'm sure we'll come on to it later, but culture is one of those huge, vast, kind of nebulous topics. So what do you actually do then? So what we decided to do was was really go out and talk to the, I suppose, the key stakeholders in banking. So what did the staff who actually work in those banks think needs to change and why? And what were the priorities from their perspective? So we did um, a wide-ranking survey with bank staff, over 15,000 staff at the time, to get their sense of where culture was at, what they thought needed to change, etc. And then we also did quite a detailed piece of work with a range of external stakeholders. So I'm talking about, you know, uh, the regulator, the media, politicians, uh, various bodies like the Ombudsman in Ireland, the Competition Authority, other financial services players, and um, people who had been impacted by some of the mis-selling and, and tracker-related issues that had occurred, and got their feedback in terms of, okay, this, was, this has been my experience, this is what I think needs to change going forward and why. And then we also spoke to actual bank customers to get their sense of what they felt in terms of the service they got, where were the outcomes optimum from their perspective, et cetera. And all of that information we took back in and that then informed what we were going to do. And what we did was we both divided our work program into the three pillars. One that is related to internal culture within the organizations that are our members. So our member banks, and that's very much staff driven. And I can talk about that in, in more detail. The second pillar then is the customer pillar and that, you know, the service and the products and the relationship that the banks have with their end customers. How is that working? Can we see evidence of improved customer outcomes and lessons being learned and, you know, uh, really the customer are being centric to decision-making? And then the third chip was around community and citizenship, I suppose, the member of society as a good corporate citizen. And what, what was happening in, in that space. So they're kind of the three pillars, just in terms of staff, for example. 
um, one of the key uh, pieces of feedback that we would have received at the very beginning and in subsequent surveys was around speaking up. And I know we're going to talk about that later, but that became a really key element of something that we, we wanted to focus on going forward in terms that we wanted to see improvements and change. And the only way that we could do that was to actually have some sort of metric for a measurement. And that's why it's very important to us to do these regular surveys. So we run them, we run them, as I said, with the different cohorts, and we have them branded under the banner of eight, which is an Irish word, which means listen for those of you who don't speak Gaelic. And, and that's how we get feedback and inform of what we actually, what we actually do. But I suppose the, the key thing that I would like to emphasize is that it's the banks that need to do the doing. So we're looking at central themes. We're identifying things that could be improved. We're, we're, we're laying back feedback that we're hearing from stakeholders. But then it's the banks that actually have to implement that. Our role is to uh, talk to them, listen to them, review and challenge what they tell us they're doing. That's the feedback from other parties to see, well, you're telling us this, but this is actually what's on the ground. But it's them that are actually implementing the changes. So how... How does that work with, between yourselves and the regulator? How does that relationship work? Okay, well, so it's it's separate and independent. So the the regulator are not they're you know, they're they're not part of the Irish Banking Culture Board. They need to be independent clearly in terms of their their regulatory role. But we do have a, a close relationship with them, and it's important that I suppose from our perspective, it's important for us to go and talk and meet with the regulator regularly to tell them about what we're doing and why and what we're seeing and what we're finding and point out good initiatives that we see happening in the batching sector and also frankly where we see things still need to improve. And equally it's really important for for us and all of the people who sit on our board to hear from the regulator well this is our sense of where things are at. Now clearly they need to be careful they're not going to give away you know individual uh, details of an individual institution, but from an industry level, what are they seeing? What are they finding? What are the common trends? Are there things that they would like us to particularly focus on? So that's the nature of our relationship. I suppose it's it's um, sharing information. Uh, we obviously have a shared agenda in terms of behaviour and cultural change. They have the, the powers of enforcement and sanction and they have the regulatory tools behind them. That's not who we are. We, we can't bind or sanction. What we're trying to do is to work voluntarily with our members to uh, to make sure that this remains a strategic priority. You spoke earlier about the, the conduct issues and the impact, the media focus, the regulatory investigations. And, you know, we've seen future remediation projects, which are, you know, disruptive, soak up management attention. There have been enormous fines, actually. Um, I think I, I, I asked up something like, almost 173 million in, in fines in relation to Tracker alone. So that in itself, I would have thought would be a key kind of commercial driver of culture. But make, make your pitch here. What, why do banks need to treat culture as a key priority? Um, well, I think it really goes back to the business. And, and, you know, if I go back to sort of my, my background for uh, while I was working in, in Bank of Ireland is, you know, if I start with risk management, okay? So risk management is not going to work well. And I know any of you who are compliance just like I was once as well, you know, it, it, it needs to be real. You know, you're not just talking about ticking a box and complying for the sake of complying. It actually needs to mean something. And it needs to go to the heart of your business. So, you know, if you have good, effective risk culture where there's a culture of openness and transparency and integrity 
and let learning lessons from things that have gone wrong because they would always go wrong and things are not going to be perfect. But the real test is, are you correcting them quickly? Are you correcting them thoroughly? Are you correcting them transparently? And are you learning lessons and moving on? So I think they're all building blocks of a good risk management framework and this open and honest culture, treating people fairly, being a good employer to your to your staff, treating your customers fairly. They're just, that's just good business. And that's what good culture and behavior is. So if you're serious about saying that, you know, culture goes to the heart of who we are and, you know, that we, we live by our values and our virtues and all of these nice words that we hear people say, well, you need to be able to see that in how the business is actually done. And that's, that, that's what I believe that it, it goes to the very heart of. The other thing is, is in relation to just being a viable business going forward. You know, we see huge expectations now of what society and employees expect of their employers and from those who buy their products and services, and they expect them to stand for something. And, you know, I think if, if you are an employer and you're wanting to recruit people and you're competing with other institutions, whether it's in the financial services space or it's elsewhere, if you have a very poor behavior and cultural track record, that is going to have consequences for your ability to attract people. People want to feel proud of where they work. Um, and I think that's only going to increase going forward. So again, I think that's another really important reason why um, culture is, is so important. And customers expect it, you know. And if you, if you look at, you know, purely the, the banking relationship, people need to have a trust where their, their money is, that it's going to be handled well, that they're going to be treated well, that their financial awareness and education needs will be taken into consideration when products are being sold to them. So again, it, it absolutely goes to the heart of just good business. Um, thanks, Marianne. Those are, are, are really potent drivers. So it's, it's good business, good risk management. As a compliance professional, I always felt that, you know, quoting fines or potential fines was rather hollow because it really is about, speaking to a business person, it is about pointing out the risks that they're, that they're running, staff expectations and, and customer expectations. But why is culture um, so difficult to change? What are the challenges in embarking on cultural change? Well, I think one of the first big challenges is that it means different things to different people. You know, so if you ask, you know, you could ask a range of different people, you're what, what, what does culture mean to you? And you'll probably get a, a slightly different answer. And actually, that's okay. You know, but what's important is that in each organization, each institution can articulate about what it means to them and why. And then they can then convey that to their staff and to their customers so that they know what this organization stands for. So I think that's the first thing is it, it can be difficult to define, get your arms around, explain what it is. So, but that's really important. The second thing that makes it very difficult to change is that it's really hard to measure because it is quite a nebulous concept. Uh, and again, it takes time and effort to come up with a set of metrics that will, me will be meaningful for your organization. And, you know, as you know, and I know, you know, if you're not measuring things, if you're not reporting it to the board, if you can't, you know, try and show tracked progress from one period to another, things will fall off the radar because they won't be considered as important. So I think that's really important is to get your metrics um, agreed and make sure they're being reported and tracked and they're being challenged on a regular basis to make sure that they actually mean something. 
So I, I think there are two, two difficulties. The other thing then is, is just translating it into your business and back to our, our just our, the discussion we just had on the, on the other question is making it really core to your business. So this is how we do business. So what is acceptable and what is not acceptable? That's really important to try and set out your stalls for that so that people know, okay, these are the, the guidelines in which I need to work. But again, all of that takes time and effort and it's not easy and it needs to be bespoke to each individual that there are commonalities, but it does need to be bespoke to an individual institution. So it requires investment and time and effort and it really requires leadership. If you don't have leadership from the top down, it's going to be impossible to change culture. So for all those reasons, it's, it's not an easy, it's not an easy one to change. Thanks, Marian. And you mentioned earlier something that came out of the staff survey was speaking up and uh, whistleblowing as uh, coming out as a, a key theme. Um, and we've had new legislation this year um, to, to supplement our previous regulatory framework on whistleblowing. So with the implementation of that new legislation, what are the challenges in fostering a positive speaking up environment? What key measures does IBCB consider it should be put in place? Okay, so yeah, this this came out in the sort of concerns about speaking up um, was something that came through very early on when we started speaking to, to staff and to other stakeholders, frankly. And to me, you know, a good, effective speaking up policy and environment within an institution really goes to the heart of, of its culture. If you don't have that, you, you know, there's just no point even talking about culture because people won't believe anything and nothing is going to change. So to me, it's, it's an absolutely essential element to get right. What we heard originally was fears over consequences to the individual. So if you have a, a, a concern or, you know, it could be at the more extreme end, maybe getting into the, the place of knowing into things. Or it could just be something more minor about, you know, an efficiency or, or something that you want to bring to people's attention. And a lot of people sound very uncomfortable doing that because they felt that it would, could reflect potentially badly on them as an individual and could have consequences for them in terms of their relationships with their, with their peers, with their team, with their line manager or longer term for their career. That, so that was definitely a concern that was, was voiced. A second thing that we heard very frequently was, yeah, you know, my institution has a speak up policy and I'll do my annual speak up training. I know what the policy is, but you know what? I've no idea what happened. If it, you know, you know, I, I know Joe Bloggs in whatever department and I know that Joe Bloggs put in a speak up and Joe never heard anything back and we've no idea what happened or didn't happen. And, you know, the whole thing's a complete waste of time. And we heard that on multiple occasions of, you know, there's no point because nothing will happen or I won't know what happens and nothing is going to change. So taking all of that back in and discussing it with, with our, with our member base, you know, it, it, it wasn't rocket science. They're, they're quite simple things, but they require commitment. And, and clearly there are confidentiality concerns and you need to manage this very carefully, but it can be done. So the simple things that made a big difference was, first of all, leaders talking about the importance of speaking up from the very low end of the scale, whether somebody just feels, you know, a mistake has been made, it's not particularly, you know, material, or they see an efficiency that they think could be done well, or they're just questioning a process or, or, or asking why, but that's okay. 
we want to encourage people to do that. Speak freely, ask questions, challenge, you know, uh, obviously in a polite and in a fair way, but that, you know, if that is something that is encouraged in this institution, right up to where you have the more serious end of the continuum where somebody could have really a genuine, you know, maybe whistleblowing or a revelatory issue that they, you know, are very concerned about, that that's going to be handled correctly. So that speak-ups are encouraged. And um, it's something that leaders need to talk about why they're important and why they want to hear them and, and why it's really important to the organization. So that was the first thing. The second thing then is in terms of the process, don't just then stop that, you know, you know, you, you speak to your line manager or you, you speak to your line manager plus one and then it goes into this. I'd thank you very much and you'd be told, you know, it's been noticed and acknowledged. What happens? It's really important that there's a feedback loop. And and then instead, there can be confidentiality concerns and everybody appreciates that. But there still is a way of giving feedback. And it could be at the end of the year uh, where it could be the CEO, it could be the CRO or whoever it is to say, you know, in the period, being the nature of the speakers that we've received, this is what we've done with them. This is how we've investigated them. This is what we've done with them. Here are some examples of things that have changed for the good because of things that have been brought to our attention. But there will be other things that clearly can't be mentioned because they might be subject to litigation or whatever it is. But people want to hear what is actually happening and why. So that, that was really, really important. And then the, the last thing and probably the, you know, the more concerning thing, and thankfully it wasn't reported highly, but it was reported by people who had had occasion to make a speak up concerns about their own personal well-being and their, you know, the support that they get because it's very difficult to speak up, particularly where it's something at the more material end of the spectrum. It is very difficult and people don't take it lightly and they need to feel supported and that, you know, they're not looked on as, as a rat or whatever, you know, that they've done it out of a genuine concern and that they're going to be protected and looked after and reassured that this is not going to have negative consequences for their career. So they were the type of things that we heard, you know, even changing the terminology, moving away from speaking up to speaking freely, that makes a big difference. So, so they're the type of things that we have been working with our member banks on trying to, to change and deliver through, through training and amendments to their internal policies. And in the last staff survey that we did, it will be two years ago, um, in March of this year, there had been a significant improvement in how people felt about speaking up, their confidence in the system and their their sense that this is something that is taken seriously and is managed in the right way. But there's still room to, to improve and we'll be doing another survey this year. And I do hope to see that the the, the improvement has continued. It'll be interesting to see where that's, where that's at. Thanks, Marion. And of course, that links back again to what you were saying about good risk management. You know, it, yes. it, it's... um. Uh, it's it's a win-win for everybody. So switching gear and uh, another certainty, which is regulatory change and another um, another new set of regs will be the individual accountability regime. How do you think that will impact on culture uh, in the sector? Well, I will be very hopeful that it will have a positive impact. But I do think there are risks that need to be managed in order to achieve that outcome. And I might talk about that. So for me, this is something, again, this is just a good way of doing your business. I mean, clearly, if you're running a good business and you have a good governance structure and you have good risk management, well, there needs to be clarity about who's accountable for what, because that's 
you know, that's the basic premise of a good governance structure. So I do think that this is an opportunity to take a step back and maybe look at governance structures and see, are things as clear as they should be? Is there an opportunity to streamline or make things clearer? And um, so that, I think that's a, that's an opportunity with this process. And, you know, if you are doing your job well as an individual and you have the right supports clearly and there's the right tools and procedures beneath you, well, then you should have no fear for being accountable for what your, your role is. The risk and, and the fear for people is that they're suddenly going to have an X on their forehead and be accountable for something and they're not going to have the supports in order to deliver, to be able to deliver that. So that, that, that needs to be there. I do think it will be helpful, I hope, to the role of the compliance officer and anybody in sort of a, a dedicated risk management type role because it makes it clear this is just not about those people. This is everybody in a senior role is accountable. And also then the, in story, it makes it very clear that this is a business issue. You know, it runs down through the business with delegated responsibilities beneath those who might be, have this sort of the, the described function. So I think that's helpful. I think the ability to link rewards with actually delivering on your accountabilities is really important. And I think that that, you know, would hopefully maybe convince those who, you know, maybe are more skeptical about behavior and cultural change and are more focused on maybe, you know, revenue and, and the bottom line. You, you, ca- you won't be able to just focus on that anymore if you're going to have remuneration and reward system that is linked with the accountability framework because you will need to show the balance. Are you achieving results in the right way? So I think that's really important. I do think that will hopefully be a good driver for for genuine cultural change. Um, However, what I would say with all of that is that uh, all of that needs to be balanced with dialogue and transparency and support from the central bank. And people need to feel that they're going to implement this regime in a fair and balanced way. That, you know, uh, people are, th- this is a, is a big change. It requires a lot of time and effort for institutions and it will take time for individuals to feel comfortable with it and to feel that they're not going to be made the big goods of. So, so I think the dialogue, the transparency, the ability to inquiry and question for the regulator to come out with, with guidance, you know, what they believe good looks like. I think all of that will help with the overall industry embedding the accountability framework in the right way and getting us to a, a better place in terms of culture. The last thing we want is for people to be living in fear of this new regime because that's not going to serve the long-term purpose of improving the culture. It's just going to lead to, you know, a further difficulty, I would say, between the regulated entities and the regulator. And that's not what we want. Yeah, the central bank should really be setting everybody up for, for success. For success in the best absolutely. Yeah. 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 Switching to yet another um emerging agenda for compliance professionals. And in fact we have launched the professional diploma in sustainable finance for compliance professionals last autumn. How does culture fit with this emerging ESG agenda? Um well, I think the, the easy answer would be to go back to say, well, look, culture is just about just doing business well, doing good business, and EFT fits in there too. But, you know, that's kind of the easy answer. I think probably the more considered answer I would give you is that if, if I look at ESG, the S and G part of that, so that's about your, your societal obligations and your governance framework. And they really, you know, even as when I said at the outset, what the areas that we focus on it in the culture was, they really go to the heart of culture. 
So in terms of your your governance piece, we've just spoken about it. You know, do you have an effective uh, governance framework in place? How does the reporting work up to the board? What type of committee structure do you have? What type of board composition do you have? Your DNI metrics, your succession planning, your your you know issues like gender pay and all of that. That all sits in under good, effective governance, and that is good culture. So there's a, an overlap there. And then if you look at the S piece about being, you know, a good corporate citizen, your societal commitment, what you were doing to improve the lives of your employees, of your customers, how are you trying to be a better corporate citizen? Again, that comes back into the culture and that a particular institution stands for. So what I would expect to see, and you have, I have seen this in, in a number of institutions in their ESG reporting is they are bringing in their behavior and culture frameworks in there. And they're talking about how they're, they're managing cultural change, particularly the, the, the bigger Irish institutions that had to have a culture framework in response to the cultural inspections from the central bank. This is an, this is a sub, the ESG is a sub element of that. Or you could say, even the behavior and culture one runs the whole remit of the institution. But how does that then fit within that subset of reporting you're doing on ESG? There will be similar metrics and it's a similar overall program. So they're very, very related. And I think you should see overlap in terms of the, the reporting and, you know, reference to cultural change programs, reference to things like DNI, as I mentioned, reference to what is happening in terms of, you know, ethics and integrity training, the accountability framework, like all of that will be things that would be reported on if you're reporting on your culture framework to your board or to the regulator, but equally should be referenced in your S&G elements of your ESG reporting. Thanks, Marianne. So it's it's very aligned, if not embedded, um, within culture. So uh, we're coming to the end of our podcast. So uh, looking to the future, what do you think would be the significant developments and challenges in the near to medium term for your organization um, and for culture in Irish banking in general? And then what will be the focus for the IBCB for 2023? Okay, well, I suppose the, the, the big immediate uh, challenge and change facing the, the retail banking industry and then as an extension impacting um us in the Banking Culture Board is the departure of Ulster Bank and KBC from the market. That's a, a huge material change to the market in Ireland. It's very regrettable. You know, it's, it's very disappointing that both those institutions are leaving and it's a very difficult period for the staff who work in those organisations and obviously it's a difficult period for the customers. So, so that's a, a major issue for the sector. And it's a lead from a cultural perspective. And from our perspective, the way that we're, and we, this is a really big priority for us for the, for the current period, is that they're leaving. We regret that, but we have to be realistic and know they're leaving. But is this exit being managed in the right way from a behaviour and cultural perspective? Are staff being supported? Are customers being supported? Those who might need additional assistance for whatever reason, if they're vulnerable for whatever reason, are they getting that assistance? Are they getting the extra time that it's needed? Our communications clear and transparent where people have more complex banking relationships. They've already been in arrears, for example, so they're not like a clean case. How is that being handled from one bank to another? So they're the things that we're asking our uh, adults to ranking KBC are, are still our members up until such point as they leave. 
how is that being managed? Uh, we're, we're challenging their plans at board level. We're asking them questions to make sure that the, the right approach is being uh, adopted to what is a very difficult project for the staff who are voting them in the banks, but equally for the customers. So that that's a, a major priority for us and will continue to be for the rest of this year. The other piece would be around the accountability regime. So we are expected, hopefully any day now, to finally see the, the final legislation and the consultation period, which will launch from the um, central bank. So that's an important piece for us. So we'll be very much focused on that in the current year. And the other thing I would call out probably is the review of the consumer protection code that the central bank are doing over the, I think, quarter one. Uh, again, we will be looking at that with interest uh, and, you know, participating in any consultation there. They're kind of the, the macro things, I suppose, that are happening from our own perspective. The other piece that we'll be doing is we'll be running our surveys again. So we run the staff survey every second year. So we'll be running it again this year. There's been a lot of change in banking. It will be interesting to see the findings in terms of internal culture. Um, and equally, we'll be out and about talking to different customer groups around their experience of the changing banking landscape. We've had a lot of back branch closures of late. Um, how is that impacting customer service and the, you know, the ability for customers to actually speak to somebody when they need to speak to them? So, so they're the kind of things that we'll be, we'll be looking at. Thank you, Mary. And that takes us to the end of our discussion. So thank you very much for, for sharing your expertise um, you. today. And that was a really wide ranging discussion. We started with the origins of the IBCB, um, and we, we talked about culture and we talked about, uh, good risk management and then the upcoming and emerging challenges, such as the new accountability framework, ESG, some of the immediate challenges, um, the departure of KBC and Ulster Bank and some things for, for our, um, listeners to look out for. The staff survey being one. So I hope that our listeners will, will look out for that. And so just remains for me to thank you for your, for your time. And thank you also to our listeners of this Compliance Files podcast, which is brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope and I'm sure that you find the podcast in interesting and useful. We would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.